Thanks for downloading the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference Podcast. The conference took place in University College Dublin on the 2nd and 3rd of September 2011 and saw over 50 speakers from Ireland and beyond come together to share their ideas in an interdisciplinary forum. In association with HistoryHub.ie, the majority of the papers are available for podcasting via the HistoryHub.ie website and on iTunes. In this episode, a recording of a paper by UCD adjunct professor James McGuire. His paper is entitled The Composition of and Representative Character of the 1689 Parliament. I'd just like to say that when one writes a paper, and this is a sort of a paper observing information from a distance, as you will see, just looking, a sort of pattern is to be seen, one owes many debts, and I think at the start I'd like to say I'm very grateful to John Bergen for advice he has given me, and also I've drawn upon the work, too, a very valuable work of Hayden Maynard, both of whom, of course, well, John's going to be speaking to afterwards. So I've called this the composition and representative character of the Irish House of Commons. The only extensive treatment of the 1689 Parliament was written more than 150 years ago by Thomas Davis for the Dublin University magazine and subsequently edited and published in 1893 by Sir Charles Gavin Duffy as the Patriot Parliament. While Davis viewed the 1689 Parliament through the prism of young Ireland nationalism, he nonetheless provided a detailed account of its composition and proceedings. The only substantial treatment of the Parliament by a professional historian in the 20th century was J.G. Sims's Jacobite Parliament and in the fifth chapter of Sims's Jacobite Ireland. Other accounts worth mentioning are Richard Bagwell's in Volume 3 of his Ireland Under the Stuarts and Brian Farrell's essay in the Irish Parliamentary Tradition. Even popular history has rather passed it by, best epitomised perhaps in a one-paragraph account of Sir George Petrie's Jacobite movement, which begins, while these events were taking place in Ulster, the Parliament had been meeting in Dublin. And Petrie soon gets the reader back to what he regards as the real events. In this paper, I would like to shift the emphasis from what the 1689 Parliament did, or from what it symbolised, or from its impact on Catholic hopes, or Protestant anxieties, and to focus instead on its composition, its representative character, and its place in the history of Catholic politics in 17th century Ireland. I would like to approach the 1689 Parliament, if at all possible, and in a way similar to the late Donald Cregan's Irish Historical Studies article on the personnel of the Confederation of Kilkenny. That was a very magnificent, very accomplished and finished piece of work, which this is not. At the outset, an obvious point. 1689 was a parliament. The 1640s Confederacy was not and never claimed to be a parliament. If the historian of the Confederacy must reconstruct the membership of the unicameral General Assemblies from various sources, the historian of 1689, despite the absence of any official records, which were ordered to be destroyed in 1695 by the Williamite Parliament, has more or less authoritative lists of constituencies and their MPs, albeit published as Williamite propaganda in London. Both Thomas Davis and J.G. Sims rely on the contemporary news sheet called An Exact List of the Knights, Citizens and Burgesses in the Parliament held in Dublin under the late King James. That was published in London in 1689. And this exact list lists 115 constituencies and the names of 230 MPs, though some of these may have been double returns, and at least two, three other names, one at least of whom was replaced for non-appearance. 
This exact list, as it is usually referred to, gives only those constituencies that returned MPs and refers to those constituencies wanting MPs as being in Londonderry, Enniskillen and, quote, such places as were in the Protestants' hands. In this respect, the list in William King's State of the Protestants of Ireland under the late King James' government names not only the constituencies which returned MPs, with some variations, I might say, from the exact list, but all parliamentary constituencies in Ireland, whether or not they made returns. King's list shows a grand total of 150 constituencies, 23 more than in the Irish Parliament of 1640, and 13 more than in Charles II's Irish Parliament of 1661-66. The additional 13 constituencies in 1689 can be seen as the final stage in that expansion of borough representation which marks the chequered history of the Irish Parliament in the 17th century. The enfranchisement of an additional 13 new constituencies was not the result of Tyrconnell's efforts to pack the Irish Parliament, but was carried out piecemeal during the latter years of Charles II's reign and would have culminated earlier, since 1679, had not the Parliament Charles II and Ormond intended for that year been aborted during the Popish plot and exclusion crises. The fact that four of the new constituencies were in County Cork, Charleville, Middleton, Rathcormack and Dunnerail may point to the predictable influence of the Boyle interest in their creation, though clearly not in their choice of those who represented them in 1689. 21 of the 35 unrepresented constituencies were in Ulster, though four were in Munster, the boroughs of Thurles and Tipperary, and the county Waterford constituencies of Lismore and Tallow. Eight were in Leinster, including the boroughs of Longford, St. Canis and Kilkenny, Burr and Kings County, and two in Connaught, Tulsk and County Roscommon, and Carrick Drumrusk and County Leitrim. The reasons why 35 constituencies returned no MPs may not have been uniform, though it's clear that the 21 Ulster constituencies that made no returns were the least likely to acknowledge a Parliament summoned on James II's authority. The fact that they were not even nominally represented is perhaps a point of significant contrast with the Kilkenny Confederacy, where, as Mihola Shukru has pointed out, were just over half the parliamentary constituencies in areas outside of direct Confederate control, the dominant faction of the Supreme Council could easily manipulate assembly attendance by appointing persons for boroughs in royalist and parliamentary territory. In 1689, it seems safe to conclude, the overwhelming majority of the 230 MPs, returned by whatever means or on whatever basis, sat for constituencies situated in areas where James II was acknowledged as lawful king in the period 25th of March, the day the Parliament was summoned, to the 8th of May when Parliament met. One of the few possible glimpses of a 1689 election comes from... Um, sorry, no. Yeah, for the petition of John Galway to Queen Mary in 1692, asking that his outlawry by the Williamite authorities be reversed, despite his having sat in the 1689 Parliament for Cork Borough, where he so claimed he had been chosen, quote, by the Protestants, most of the Roman Catholic electors being against him. That's one of the sort of rare glimpses of some sort of electoral process in 1689. Unlike the 1640s Confederacy, the 1689 Parliament was not exclusive to Roman Catholics. 
It was a parliament in which the only test required for members was the oath of allegiance. Nor was it uniformly Catholic in the way that the Commons in 1661 and again in 1692 were uniformly Protestant. But the distinction is largely theoretical, at least so far as the House of Commons is concerned. Only six, but possibly seven, MPs were Protestant. Three of them, Joseph Coughlin and Sir John Mead, the MPs for Dublin University, and Arthur Brownlow, MP for County Armagh, who would, sit and, and who would sit and win the, the third 1692 Parliament. The others were Sir William Ellis, James II's Secretary at War and MP for St Johnstown, County Longford, and Sir Thomas Crosby and Jeremiah O'Donovan, members for County Kerry and the Borough of Baltimore, respectively. The exact list of MPs I mentioned earlier, the one used by Thomas Davis and J.G. Sims, gives the latter as Jeremy Donovan. It's William King who has him as Jeremiah O'Donovan. King's State of the Protestants differs from the exact list in having Ellis as MP for St. Johnstown in County Donegal, not County Longford. Whichever it was, Ellis had clearly been found a seat in a borough which in normal times would be at the disposal of its patron, which in the case of St. Johnstown, County Longford, was the, uh, would be the Earl of Granard himself, a possibly reluctant member of James's House of Lords. The possible or probable seventh Protestant MP is Francis Stafford MP for Armagh Borough, who is very likely the Francis Stafford who was born Francis Eklund, the grandson of Robert Eklund, Bishop of Down and Connor, who assumed the name Stafford as a condition um, of an inheritance from his uncle Sir Edmund Stafford of Mount Stafford County Antrim. His second wife Sarah MacDonald was a Catholic and sister Randall MacDonald MP for County Antrim. It's quite possible, of course, that Francis Stafford may have, been, may have become a Catholic on or following his marriage. Uh, for what it is worth, William King gives his name not as Stafford but as Stoppard, or Stoppard, S-T-O-P-H-A-R-D. If religious affirmation requires little comment, if the 1689 Parliament was to all intents and purposes a Catholic assembly, is the same true of ethnic origins? Certainly historians have been inclined to treat the Parliament as old English in composition, interest and sentiment. As Richard Bagwell put it, not more than 60 of the 230 MPs bore Celtic names. Tyrconnell favoured the pale at the expense of the Irish natives, which may in some measure account for the predominance of what Bagwell called the Anglo-Irish element. For J.G. Sims, more than two-thirds bore English names, the Parliament predominantly represented the old English landlord interest. For Brian Farrell, both houses were far more representative of the old English or Anglo-Norman interest than of the Gaelic-Irish. These two groups may have shared religion. There was no question of sharing either land or political power. The 1689 Parliament, like its 17th-century predecessors and 18th-century successors, was closed to the Gaelic-Catholic majority. That's a quote from Farrell. The same interpretive emphasis to be found in secondary surveys and textbooks written ever since. Only Thomas Davis seemed to notice the significance of MPs with Irish names. Superficially, the evidence from the list of members of the House of Commons supports this almost unanimous stress on the old English character of parliamentary representation. Even if a closer analysis of surnames suggests a larger proportion of Gaelic names... 81 possibly compared with Bagwell's 60 plus, 
the evidence of the membership list still shows an ethnic background by surname in the order of 132 Old English to 81 Gaelic-Irish, with possibly 18 New English or other names. And three of those with Gaelic-Irish names were Protestant. If Protestant MPs are discounted, there are 129 Old English to 78 Gaelic names among the Catholic MPs. The preponderance of Old English names, even in a largely Catholic Parliament, is hardly surprising. Seats in the Irish Commons were predominantly representative of parliamentary boroughs, established over the years in areas of English settlement. The greatest concentration of these boroughs was in the eastern half of the country. Representation in any parliament summoned on the basis of existing parliamentary constituencies must inevitably have reflected this geographical and demographic imbalance. What makes the composition of the 1689 Parliament unusual is not that old English names are predominant, but that Gaelic names were still well represented. The point is best seen by comparison with the two preceding parliaments in which Catholics were last represented in the Commons, both of them in Charles I's reign. In 1634, there were 112 Catholic MPs, of whom no more than 16 at most bore Gaelic names. The same sort of imbalance is even more marked when Charles I's Second Parliament met in 1640, with only seven Catholic MPs having Gaelic names out of a total of 74 Catholic MPs in the first parliamentary session. In other words, 14% in 1634 and 9% in 1640. In 1689, by comparison, the incidence of Gaelic names represents 34% of Catholic representation. In this respect, James II's Parliament resembles more the Confederacy, in which, according to Donald Cregan, around one-third of the General Assemblies on balance had Irish names, though Michal Oshoku would put it at a, a a slightly lower percentage. If we look for the constituencies in which MPs with Irish names occur we find that they are spread, though thinly, across much of the country, with the exception of old English fastnesses such as Wexford, Waterford, Tipperary and Meath. But they are concentrated in parts of the Midlands and Ulster, areas in which you might expect to find them. For example, Kings County had three constituencies in 1634 and 1640 and returned one Catholic and five Protestant MPs to both parliaments. In 1689, which is three constituencies returning six MPs, the recently enfranchised Burr made no return in 1689. Four out of six MPs bore Irish names. Owen Carroll for the county, John Connor for Phillipstown, and two Terence Cocklands for Banagher. <coughs> in 1634 and 1640, the three Leitrim constituencies had returned six Protestant MPs. In 1689, with no return from Carrick Drum Rusk, Carrick and Shannon, Leitrim was represented by Edmund Reynolds, and Ariel Farrell for the county, and William Shandley and Alexander MacDonald for the borough of Jamestown. The latter, despite his surname, had recently developed strong connections with the area, having been High Sheriff of County Leitrim in 1686-7, and Colonel and Commander Boyle around County Ross Common in 1688. While the three other MPs bore names of strong connections with the region. The same is true of County Cork, which had eight constituencies in 1640, and six Catholic members, two of whom bore Irish names, and three had the surname Roach. No one called Roach was returned in 1689, when, with an increased number of constituencies, 24 members were elected, of whom 11 had Irish names, including five McCarthys and two O'Donovans, one of whom was Protestant. Ulster requires special attention, 
where the contrast with 1640 is most marked. The most significant returns are for constituencies in Antrim, Armagh and Down, none of which returned any Catholic member in 1634 or 1640. Two Antrim constituencies were represented in 1689, the county by Randall MacDonald and Cormac O'Neill, High Sheriff in 1687, and Belfast by Marcus Talbot, Turconnell's son, and Daniel O'Neill. Talbot is the odd man out here, presumably found the seat by his father. But the three other had, the others had close ties with the area. Three of the down constituencies sent six members, who, judging from surname alone, seemed entirely appropriate to that county. Killilay was represented by Bernard McGuinness of Ballygorian Beg and Tullo O'Neill of Drummachelly, while the county was represented by Merton McGuinness of Greencastle and Eva McGuinness of Castle Wellen, with two non-Gaelic names long associated with South Down, representing the borough of Newry, Roland White and Roland Savage. Armagh's two county representatives were William Hovenden, a member of a Gaelicised family, and the Protestant Arthur Brownlow, whose family background, as Sims pointed out, was an unusual combination of Ulster, Planter, Old English and Gaelic-Irish. Armagh Borough was represented by Constantine O'Neill. As for the other Ulster counties, there are predictable O'Reillys representing four of the six Cavan seats, and, as in 1634, though not in 1640, the county of Monaghan was represented by two McMahons, Brian and Hugh. The constituencies so far examined were represented in 1634 and 1640, either mostly or exclusively by Protestant members. In 1689, when many Protestants had fled Ireland and others were either intimidated or reluctant to engage in politics, parliamentary representation became the preserve not just of Catholics, but for the most part of MPs with surnames long identified with the areas they represented. I believe this has implications to the role traditionally assigned to Tyrconnell of either personally nominating MPs or manipulating electoral contests, assuming there were any. Even if contemporary Williamite propaganda has a right, and O'Connell determined, uh, O'Connell determined the membership of the Commons, a view historians have not seriously questioned, may we not conclude that his nomination suggests at the very least a preparedness to oblige local interests where traditional loyalties might yet have a significant part to play? If so, his commitment to the interests of the Old English at the expense of the Gaelic-Irish may have been exaggerated. The composition of the 1689 Commons may be more significant than historians have hitherto allowed. Never before had so many members with Gaelic names sat in an Irish House of Commons, a fact which makes 1689 unique in the parliamentary history of early modern Ireland. But it does not mean that the House of Commons, or the House of Lords for that matter, divided along ethnic lines. The interests of both Old English and Gaelic Irish were well served by the legislation of the Parliament. Clearly the Old English whether dispossessed proprietors or the partially restored under the Court of Claims, the Catholic new interest accepted, could expect to benefit most from the Act repealing the Acts of Settlement and Explanation. This Act might also benefit some former Gaelic-Irish proprietors, such as those whose forebears had been included in the Ulster Plantation. But repeal of the Restoration Settlement held no joy for the descendants of those dispossessed in James I's reign, for them, and indeed for all adherents of James II, the act of attainder, with its promise of mass forfeiture of Protestant estates across Ireland, was the path to restoration of land and position. As William King explained, quote, two-thirds of the Protestant gentlemen 
would lose their estates by the Act of Repeal, by which all the estates since 1641 were taken away, while, quote, most of those that had old estates, unquote, would be attainted. The detailed information in the Attainder Act, with over 2,000 names listed by county, underlines the extent to which intimate local knowledge was brought to bear in this comp- compilation. If I emphasise the significance of a sizable number of MPs with Irish names, it is to emphasise the representative character of the Parliament. It is not to suggest that there existed an Irish party as opposed to an old English party. MPs with Irish names may have no more conformed to a type than the, did those with old or new English names. An ethnic polarity is not the fault line of this Parliament. Its legislation in large part served all those with ambitions to revive their fortunes and positions as landed gentlemen. The main division within the Parliament was the unequal contest between Catholic proponents of land restoration, exemplified by the Speaker of the House of Commons, Sir Richard Nagel, and Protestant defenders of the restoration settlement, William Brownlow in the Commons and Bishop Anthony Dopping in the Lords, encouraged from the sidelines, I might say, by the King himself. A second source of division was the conflict of interest within Catholic ranks, between the majority seeking the overthrow of the settlement and the new interest group, consisting mostly of MPs and Pearson Connett, who represented those who had bought into the restoration settlement and who feared for their investments in in its destruction. Bishop King claimed that Ireland under James II witnessed a veritable social revolution in which the very scum and sink of the people were appointed justice of the peace, while, quote, men without freehold, without sense and without honesty, unquote, became sheriffs. It became intolerable, he said, for Protestants to live under the government of their footmen and servants. But the Catholic political nation that took power in the late 1680s was in fact a rival and to an extent still landed gentry. 180 members of the 1689 Commons are described in the list of MPs as either Esquire or Gentlemen, six are Baronets, three are... There are nine knights and a number of peers' sons. Eleven have military rank, two are medical doctors, and sixteen are either aldermen or merchants. Curiously, only three are identified in the contemporary lists as lawyers, very likely those who actually practice law. As a result of her important and revealing work on Irish admissions to the English Inns of Court, Dr Hazel Maynard has been able to identify a further 31 1689 MPs as practising lawyers. 11 of them with Gaelic-Irish names. She has to identify 19 MPs who had been educated at the Inns of Court, like her Confederate predecessors, predecessors but who are not practising lawyers. It is worth noting here that the legislative output of the Parliament was considerable, amounting to some 35 public and private acts. None of the 1689 MPs had any previous parliamentary experience, as no Catholic has sat on the Commons since November 1641, They were parliamentary novices, like the majority of Protestant MPs in the 1692 Parliament, though in that Parliament up to 24 MPs had at least sat in Charles II's Parliament. It's possible that one 1689 MP, John Talbot of Belgard, member for the borough of Newcastle County, Dublin, may have sat in the Confederate General Assembly. The members of the 1689 Parliament were the new Catholic political nation, those whom Sir William Petty in 1672 had dubbed the invisible or mystical government of Ireland. They had now briefly replaced that new Protestant political nation which had emerged by 1660, what Petty had called in the 1670s the external and apparent government of Ireland. Thank you.